0: Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Uh, Today, as uh, we worship together, is our first time worshiping together since our first time worshiping together as two churches becoming one. And uh, Last week, we came together as two churches and and started a relationship with one another, getting to know some of the newest members of Southbridge, and some of you have been here for a while at Southbridge, and we talked about what it is to be one, and uh, we talked about how being one means that we're one through relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. And uh, some of you might have empty seats by you today, and so if you want to be, you don't want to have somebody sit on your lap and be one that way. Why don't you scoot on in a little bit? Thank you for doing that. Those of you here doing that, we got some folks coming in the back here still today. And uh, we're also one through victory over sin, death, and Satan because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Amen. And uh, we talked about being one on mission together as a church, and so I just want to ask you as we get started this morning, how did this week go with you living on mission in your home? As we just saw with these families. In your community, where you work, and relationships with whoever you come into a relationship with, how was the maybe with your one being bold in your faith? And here's the encouraging word to have for you today: even if you missed opportunities, or maybe you blew it, God's mercies are new every morning, and so we turn to Him in grace. You get a fresh start today. And today's Father's Day. We're glad that you're here. Tomorrow or next week, not tomorrow. Wow, I wouldn't be ready. But next week, uh, we're starting a new series. And we're going to be in the Gospel of John next week. And we're going to be walking through encounters that Jesus had uh, with people throughout the Scripture. And and my hope for you as a church, I'll just tell you right now, and we'll get into it a little bit more next week, is that as we get ready to, to go back over to our Strickland Road campus in the fall, is that Jesus would so influence the way that he interacted with people, would influence the way that we interact with the people that will come to our church. The way that we interact with religious people will be different than the way we act with irreligious people. The way that we interact with people that are blatantly in sin will be different than people that are repenting of sin. And we'll see how Jesus does that. And hopefully, he'll shape and change us as a body for that. Amen? And so, we're going to start that next week. But today's Father's Day. And so, dads, we're glad that you're here. Happy Father's Day. Um, I'm not going to just give you a man message today, though. Today's message, there's a ton of application for you. But really, it applies to anybody who's ever wondered this question Does my life matter? Am I making a difference? Does any of this stuff, is we told in the Bible, our lives are just a vapor, but does my vapor matter? <laughs> and so we're going to be in 1 Chronicles chapter 28 today. I know that's not oftentimes a popular place to turn in the Bible, so 1 Chronicles, right after First and Second Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, right after the historical books, First and Second Chronicles at the end of 1 Chronicles today, chapter 28, you can turn there, and I'm going to pray for us as we open up the scripture. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open your word today. I pray that you would speak to our hearts. I pray for our dads. We've got some specific commands that are just to dads in the Bible. One of them, don't exasperate our children, but train them up in the Lord. And God, I pray that you'd give us an exhortation to do that today through your word, even if they're not the direct words that I'll say. And Father, I pray that you'd speak into each one of our hearts, whether a dad, a mom, a single person, a child, a, an elderly person, and all the kids are gone. Father, I pray that you'd speak to our lives. Through your word today, because we know it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And God, I pray you'd pierce our hearts and convict our sin and encourage our souls. And whatever it is you desire to do, have a thousand conversations while I speak. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As we get started this morning, I want to get your imagination engaged. So I want you to imagine something with me. Oftentimes when I do that, I'll just tell you one of my, as I teach, one of the, the ways that I'll do that is I'll oftentimes ask what if questions. Like what if, and then give you some scenario. There are thousands of what if questions that you could ask. I could ask you today. What if someone gave you a million dollars on your way out of church today? You're the one millionth attender at Southbridge Fellowship, and there's some benevolent person out in the parking lot, and he's like, here's a million dollars. What would you do with the money? Of course, you would tithe. You'd come back in and give 100000 And then, then what would you do with your other? You were just freely given $900,000. What would you do with it? And you start thinking in your mind, I'd pay off this debt, or I'd do this thing, or I'd give to this, or I'd buy that, or... And you kind of get your imagination going, or I could ask you this what if question. What if you could have any superpower that you've ever seen by any superhero? What would you pick? So so people already know. We already got it. Like, you guys are on it. I got some Avenger fans over here. I got some spidey senses happening in this section. What if you could, I don't think I could resist flying. I started thinking through them. And I thought about being bulletproof. Wouldn't it be awesome to be bulletproof? But then I thought, when are you going to use that? How many many times in my life has that been applicable? It made me think of one time I saw on social media somebody that had grown up in my generation with like Indiana Jones and some of that kind of stuff was popular. There's a bunch of people sinking in quicksand and the caption said on the meme, I thought quicksand would be a bigger problem in my life than it's turned out to be. It's like, why do you need to be bulletproof? You don't need to be, maybe you could be like time traveler, like think about all the things. And there are a lot of fun what if questions I could ask you, but today I want to ask you one that's very sobering. What if today was your last day to live and you knew it? What if you only had 24 hours to live? How would you live different? What would your priorities be? What conversations might you have that you wouldn't have just a norm, if you're just going about your business today? What Maybe you'd reconcile some relationships, some of you. Maybe you'd tell somebody you loved them. Maybe, would you even sleep? Like, what would you do different? And then when that 24 hours is up, how will you be Remembered? Because God does know your days. He just hasn't revealed to you when the time is. And we don't know. Maybe it is twenty four hours, maybe it's twenty four years, forty two years. We don't know. But how are you gonna be remembered? What is your legacy going to be? And so, Dad, since it's Father's Day, what's your legacy gonna be with your kids? See, everybody's gonna have a legacy. Everybody's gonna have something that you leave behind. But today I've titled today's message An Eternal Legacy. And the question is, do you have one that's gonna last an eternal legacy? Because here's some sobering truth, and it's not very encouraging news, but I'm gonna tell you this that in four generations no one will know you are here. I don't care if you're really wealthy and you donated a building at NC State or UNC or some hospital wing, no one knows who you are, and they don't care. And if you want me to prove that to you, who is your great-great-great-great-grandpa? You it doesn't matter. So, how do you have an eternal legacy? Because everybody's gonna have a legacy. Just think about this year, the celebrities that have died in 2018. We're only six months through the year. Think of all the celebrities that have died. Most recently, Kate Spade, Anthony Bourdain. In this year, though, Billy Graham, for God so loved the world. What's well, his legacy? You hear that? When I hear that verse, I think of Billy Graham. He led millions of people to a relationship with Jesus Christ. You know who else recently died? 2018? Stephen Hawking. Do you know him? Is that a well-known scientist, an atheist? Let me tell you in his words what, what his views were of God from the History Channel. Stephen Hawking said this, We are each free to believe what we want. It's my view that the simplest explanation is there is no God. No one created the universe and no one directs our fate. This leads me to a profound realization. There's probably no heaven and no afterlife e- either. We have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe and for that, I am extremely grateful. So you got Billy Graham on one hand, and this year, Stephen Hawking on the other hand, never knew the grand designer, worshiped creation rather than the creator, the Bible talks about this, and he's found out what his thoughts were on the afterlife. Two very different legacies. But these are famous people, and so sometimes it's like, well, yeah, they leave legacies because they're, they're, but do you know the even famous people, they're going to leave a legacy with the people that were close with them. There's a guy who died a few years ago, uh, Scott Whalen. Uh, some of you might know him. You might not know the name. He was the lead singer for Stone Temple Pilots. When he died in December of 2015, his ex-wife said what his legacy was with him, with her and with her kids. And um, I'll read her words to you. Lots of fans, lots of people were excited about him, celebrated, mourned him. But he said th- she said this, Mary Forsberg. December 3rd, 2015 is not the day Scott Whalen died. It's the official day the public will use to mourn him. And it was the last day he could be propped up in front of a microphone for the financial benefit or enjoyment of others. The outpouring condolences and prayers offered to our children, Noah and Lucy, has been overwhelming, appreciated, and even comforting. But the truth is, like so many other kids, they lost their father years ago. What they truly lost on December 3rd was hope. She goes on to paint a portrait of him. You can find this letter online. he wasn't engaged with his kids. He was an absent father. He wasn't there. That's his legacy. What's your legacy? Do you have an eternal legacy? I'll tell you, as a pastor, I've done different funerals of different types of people, some believers in Jesus Christ, some not believers in Jesus Christ, some people, good, you know, nice people, friendly people, kind people, some not. It doesn't matter. People will have a memory of you. You will have a legacy. The question is, will you have an eternal legacy? And the way you answer that is, how are you investing in the next generation with eternal truths? And so today what we're going to do, the passage we're going to look at is actually a father speaking to his son, pouring out a legacy, talking about his own life, and then giving exhortation to that son on how to carry the torch. It's David to Solomon, King David, the most fam- still to this day the most famous, well-known, and best king that ever existed in Israel, to the next king, his son, Solomon. Did you know Solomon was David's son? And we read these last words in 1 Chronicles chapter 28. I'm going to read you verses 1 through 10, but we're going to focus in really on verses 9 through 10. But I want you to have the whole context. First Chronicles is a great book to read if you're wanting kind of the cliff notes on the Old Testament. <laughs> so those of you who are like, ah, oh, that's a big Old Testament, I'm just going to read First Chronicles. Why don't you go there, you'll get some of the highlights from Adam through David, and then you get the other kings in Second Chronicles. Originally, First and Second Chronicles, along with Nehemiah and Ezra, were probably all one book. It's been broken up by those who are translating the Bible uh, to make it easier for us to reference things probably written by Ezra, but we don't know for sure because the book doesn't actually say that, and so I'll just call him the, the chronicler when I'm talking about the author of this book. But in First Chronicles chapter 28, it's the end of David's life. These are some of his last recorded words. Look at what he says, verse 1. David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel, the officials of the tribes, of the officers, of the divisions that served the king, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, the stewards of all the property and livestock of the king and his sons, Together with the palace officials, the mighty men, all the seasoned warriors. It's a who's who assembly. Verse 2. Then King David rose to his feet and said, some of his last publicly recorded words, hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations for the building. But God said to me, you may not build a house for my name. For you are a man of war and have shed blood. And so God said no. Now some of you, as you think about if today was your last, you'd think about the things you haven't accomplished. The dreams maybe that you had, unfulfilled things. David knew that, as great a king as he was. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me, but God still had a plan for him. God said no about something he wanted to do, but God still had a plan, and that's true for you too. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me from all my father's house to be king over Israel forever. For he chose Judah as leader, and in the house of Judah, my father's house, and among my father's sons, he took pleasure in me to make me king over all Israel. Remember that first Samuel, God does not look at outward appearances, no one even considered David, but God chose David because he, he's a man after God's heart. And of all my sons, verse 5, for the Lord has given me many sons, he had a lot of kids, he's chosen Solomon my son, not the oldest, to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He said to me, "It is Solomon your son who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever if he can if he continues strong in keeping my commandments and my rules, as he is today. Now, therefore, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, here's David's charge to all the people: Observe and seek out all the commandments of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land and leave it for an inheritance to your children after you forever." And then he turns to his son Solomon and you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For, here's why, the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. You can't pretend to serve him with a whole heart and fake him out. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. If you really want to know God, you will know him. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Verse 10, be careful now for the Lord has chosen you to build a house For the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. (laughs) Strong words from a dad to a son. Here you've got these last words. Let me tell you something about last words. Last words can oftentimes be lasting words. And if you don't think that's true, and you don't think we're fascinated with last words, some of you have tablets, I can see it glowing on you. I don't know if you're checking your email. I don't care right now. That's between the Lord knows your heart. (laughs) But if you want to real quick Google famous last words, I promise you, you'll get millions of, you'll get all kinds of results on there. There's some books that have been written. People write them down. We're fascinated with the, like the last words people say because those can be some incredibly impactful words. Some people say there's like moments of clarity and truth that comes out clearer than any other time in your life and those last words. And so we write them down and who knows for sure how accurate they are when you Google that stuff. But like Sir Winston Churchill, apparently he said that he was bored with it all. That was how he ended his life. <laughs> and I think, what a grumpy old man. Like when I read that, that's all boring here. I'm ready to get to heaven. Like I don't know what he's thinking in that moment. I read one guy that's a drummer uh, for a, a band. He was going into surgery, and the nurse was getting doing the medical preparations for him and said, is there anything you can't take? And he answered back, country music. <laughs> and he didn't make it through that. And so his family remembers. Like, he hated country music. Those are his last words. Some of you might, do you remember this name? Todd Beamer from 9-11? And those planes were, were being, you know, hijacked, and he was on one of those planes, and there was a phone call that picked up his last words. Let's roll! And so now he's... If I'm his kids, I'm going, my dad was get after it. Let's go. Let's do it. Some of you know that my father-in-law recently passed away. So this is our first father's day. Without, he's a father figure in my life. He's not here. He's an elder in our church, very influential. And those of you are at the funeral, you know, the way that I depicted his life and then memorialized him and shared the gospel was through words that he would often share, words that live on as part of his legacy. That's what King David is doing here, saying, this is my life that I'm sharing with you, and as I think about my whole life, the most important things I can share with you, he gives his son really three things, and we're going to give them to you today. If you want to have an eternal legacy, an everlasting legacy, these are the three things you must have in your life. And the first one is, did you see it in verse 9 when he turns to his son to speak? You, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father. You must know God, the one true God. If you want to have an everlasting and eternal legacy, you must know God. Now, some of you are Christians and you think, well, of course I know God. I prayed this prayer. I know God. If you want to have an, you you might even think to yourself a memorable way to say it. If you want to have an eternal legacy, you've got to have eternal life. Because eternal life, remember, in John chapter 17, verse 3, eternal life is that you know God. But when you step back and you think about what's happening here, and we read all the way from verse 1, you think of all the things that David could have said. He's ruled as king now for 40 years. He's somewhere between 60 and 70 years old. He's had all kinds of life lessons. They sang songs about him. David killed his tens of thousands. He was a warrior. He was a king. He's a poet. He's written psalms, played the harp to his predecessor, held men in his arms as they've died, men that he's loved, mourned them, knows leadership principles, knows political... If you want a lesson on how to bring unity out of division, David's the guy. He's brought all of Israel under one flag. You want military success? He subdued every enemy, even the Philistines. You want some real estate advice, development, advancement? He's taken Israel from 6,000 square miles to 60,000 square miles under his reign. All the things he could say, how to be a leader, how to lead in difficult times, how to cast a vision that's big enough to inspire people, small enough they can grab a hold of. He could give a lot of TED Talks. But he says, son, no, my God. Because he knows that's the most important thing. You want to have an eternal legacy? You need to know God. So try and imagine the scene here that happened. We started reading up in verse 1. If you read verse 1 with me, it would be a little bit boring reading verse 1 because it's just like these people came and these people came and these people came. Let me ask you this. How many of you watched the royal wedding that was recently on TV? Some of you guys are looking at me like, even if I watched it, I'm not raising my hand. Like I know we're at church, but I'm not telling you I watched that thing. If you had watched it, hypothetical for most of you, if you had watched it, you would know it's a who's who. If you get invited to the royal wedding, you show up. David, still to this day the most famous king in all of Israel, still the greatest king in all of Israel's history, politically speaking. This is going to be his last speech ever. You get invited, you come. He says here who some of the people are, and you can look at verse 1 again. All of, all of the seasoned warriors. I, remember, I wonder how many of those guys were with him when he was fleeing from Saul in a cave. Think about the memories that he has with these men. What about when you're David and you look out into this crowd of the who's who and all the people, they all represent portions of your life and moments of your life and some difficult decisions. And maybe there's some people there that have betrayed you. And maybe there's some people there that have always been with you. And there's people, maybe the guy that went and got Bathsheba's there. Maybe, and you look out and you see family members and your kids and the mighty warriors and the officials And you've got all kinds of memories. And then you think about the faces that aren't there. And then he gets up to give a speech. It'd be like being at Billy Graham's last sermon. You'd be on the edge of your seat. What's he going to say? And it's already mentioned, all the leadership things he could say, all the success that he had in his life. He fulfilled God's purposes. The New Testament says that about him. In fact, in Acts chapter 13, it says this about David. In Acts chapter 13, verse 36, New Testament. For when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he died. That's the biblical way to say he died. Chuck Swindoll, when he writes his book on David, he's got a book that just highlights some things of David's life. He takes that verse and then he starts it off with a blank. And he says, put your name in that blank. If you put your name in that blank, could it be said of you served God's purposes in his or her own generation? Because God does have a purpose for you. But you think about how David started his speech off. It wasn't all the amazing things that happened in his life. It was failure. I wanted to build the temple, but I couldn't. Here's something I think you've learned about David by reading this passage of Scripture. David was a control freak, which I love that, because I identify with him then. Because David, he wanted to build a temple, and God said no, but you know what David did? He came up with all the plans, bought the property, assembled all the people. Here's all the money. Here's all the materials. Here's the instructions, Solomon. That's what happens in verse 11, by the way. He couldn't do, God said no, but he didn't rush ahead and do it. Instead he focused on here's what God's plan is for me and God does have a plan. He's got a plan for you. And so David starts off his speech with his failure. You think he's got people on the edge of their seat at that moment? You've got the successful king who's done all these amazing things and instead he tells you where he blew it? God told me I couldn't do this. I couldn't, that's because I'm a man of blood. Because he had killed so many people. And then he goes on and he starts to exhort the people as a whole. Obey all God's commandments. Like that's the, if you, if you follow, being in close relationship with God. But then he turns to his son. And with those, Seasoned hands, who've killed many, who've seen people die, who've played the harp, who've written the Psalms, grabs his son's face, says, You know my God. Why does he start there? Because it's the most important thing of anything that could be told to any person. You gotta know God. You're not gonna know the one true God. Know the God of your father, Solomon, he says there. Now let me tell you something. When you grasp this, it's like a moment of clarity because all of life starts to make sense. Now, there are people that know God that still don't grasp this truth. Let me tell you what Jay Packer, in his book, it's appropriately titled for this point, which is to know God, knowing God. He writes a book called Knowing God. So if you don't have that book, I recommend you get it. Chapter 3, he starts off with this. He says, what were we made for? And it's like a catechism. He asks a question, then gives the biblical answer. It's to know God. So let me pause there before I read the rest of the quote. If you're here and you're a skeptic, an agnostic, an atheist, a doubter, You can do all kinds of things in life, accomplish every goal and every dream you've ever had, and life will not make sense to you because you don't know God. This is the key. This is the essence of all of life, to know God. He goes on to say it like this. What aims should we set for ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. If you don't think that's true, you go to the passage we looked at last week in John chapter 17 and verse 3. Jesus defines eternal life. He doesn't define it like a lot of people define it. He doesn't talk about floating on clouds, playing harps, being really bored, dressing like an angel, getting your wings. He says, this is eternal life, that you'd know God. And his son, whom he sent, Jesus Christ. That's how you know God's through Jesus. And then Packer goes on in his book, he says, what's the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else, knowledge of God. Then he quotes scripture, Jeremiah 9, 23-24. This is what the Lord says. Sorry, Stephen Hawking, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom the strong man boasts in his strength, or the rich man boasts of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. Signed, God. It's the knowledge of God. So when I say to you, it's the most important thing you can know. And when you grasp this, everything in life starts to make sense. Here's why. Because when the wheels fall off in your life, and they will, the Bible promises in this world you will have trouble. It's not because you didn't pray hard enough. It's not because you weren't obedient enough. This isn't karma. talking about a relationship with God, what God's doing in those moments. When you lose your job, when somebody dies of cancer, when you've got physical struggles, when you've got bills you can't pay, when there's frustration, life hasn't turned out the way that you wanted it to. Let me tell you one of the worst things that's happened in Christianity is we've got this slogan that people say, God won't give you more than you can handle. That's not true. In fact, the Bible actually says, Paul says, we had more than we could handle. Second Corinthians chapter one, we just of a life itself so that we might depend upon God. Let me tell you what God's doing in those moments. I don't know. He's doing a bazillion things in that moment. I don't know all the details of his plan for your life. But I know that what he's doing is he's drawing you closer to him so you'll know him. So when the wheels fall off and you go, God, why? What's happening? You can know for sure that he wants to know you more. When he calls you to step out by faith in a new area, maybe with your kids like these families right here, you have to trust him in ways they never had to trust before. Maybe in your finances. He calls you to a sacrifice you've never had to do before. Maybe in being bold with your faith. When he calls you to those areas of trust, those are areas where he wants you to know him more. He's pressing in to know you. And so that's why knowing him is so essential and important. And what you see is in the scripture, the people who grasp this, they realize it's more important than anything else in life. David, who writes this, writes a bunch of the Psalms. My favorite Psalm is Psalm 63. He says, Oh God, you are my God. Here's the problem for many Christians. is that Oh God is who he remains. I believe in God. There's a God out there. Do you know what the New Testament says about belief in God? That even demons believe in God. They don't have the knowledge like David's talking about here. What David's talking about here, this is an experiential word. This is why it's very difficult for some of us because of the generation we live in. Here's what I'm talking about. I was at lunch uh, about a week or two weeks ago with some guys. We were talking and one of them started to use an analogy. And his analogy was if you want to experience something, you actually have to do it. He goes, it's like skydiving. If you want to skydive, there's only one way to skydive, and it's a jump out of an airplane. What he didn't know was the other guy that we were sitting at the table had, had a virtual skydiving experience, and I knew that, and so I looked over at him, and he was like, well, like he wanted to chime in with some extra information. And then I started thinking, but what is it in life that you have to actually experience for yourself? We were eating lunch, and so I thought to myself, you got to actually taste the food, you got to eat the food, and then I thought, hey, moron, later tonight, you're going to be at home watching diners, drive-ins, and dives. And... And I will, in a sense, I will experience the food through diners, drive and dives. This guy Fieri will get on there and he'll have some burger that's the size of his face. It's like kimchi and onion rings and tater tots on it and like just shrimp. Like all kinds of stuff will be packed on it. And it really depends on what kind of mood I'm in. I'll either think it's gross or I'll think it's amazing. It just depends on the mood. And I'll watch him eat this burger. And I won't have eaten the burger, but in a sense, I will have experienced this. And then I dare you to watch diners, drive and dives and not have actually eat anything. I will go get a bowl of cereal. It's not the big burger, but it's like, now i got to eat. Like, something happens in that moment. Here's, here's the reality for many of us in Christianity, is that we virtually experience God. You, you, don't, you don't really you know your pastor's God. You agree with the things he says. You believe them. Or your spouse's God, or your parent's God, or your neighbor's God, or some guy that leads your small group, or Bible study, or some woman that you look to, but you don't have faith. Did you see what David was saying here to Solomon. He doesn't say, have my faith. He says, Solomon, my son, know the God, know my God. Why, why my God? Because my God is the one true God. So what, what does that mean to know him? We know that's the longing of his heart because David didn't want, oh, Psalm 63, oh God, you are my God. And then he goes on to talk about how he experienced him himself. Earnestly, I seek you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. I want you. That doesn't even make sense. Because he knows, the most, he knows the only thing that will satisfy in life is so I want you. And then he goes on and he says, your love is better than life. How many people actually believe that? Not just in your head, that his love is better than anything you can experience in this life? Let me ask you this question. What's the greatest thing you've experienced in life? Greatest vacation you've been on, seeing a baby be born, your wedding day, some victory you experienced, some accomplishment in your life, when some dream came true, what is it for you? You know what you see in the Bible? The people who truly know God put those things into perspective and they're for, those things, whatever the greatest memory in your life is, are forgettable in comparison to knowing God. The Apostle Paul says that one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible in Philippians chapter 3, he's just listed off the greatest accomplishments in his life. He was an achiever. He was a guy that was trying to accomplish things and perform and do things. Do you know what he says? I consider all that a loss in comparison to knowing Christ. Philippians chapter 3, I'll read you verses 7 and 8. But whatever gain I had, I count it as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. <laughs> the royal wedding language. In order that I may gain Christ. That word rubbish, King James translated as dung. Slang, crap. It's actually more vulgar than all of that and I won't say that word. But that's what Paul's saying. He's listed off all the greatest memories, all the greatest things in his life. And he says, in comparison to knowing Christ, it's a bunch of crap, a bunch of trash. It's garbage. It's not even worth remembering. Then he goes on to say, in verse 10, that's verses 7 and 8, verse 10, he says, I want to know Christ. The power of his resurrection. We all want that. And the fellowship of his suffering. Who wants that? That's how I I want to know Christ, even if it means suffering, so that I can know his sufferings. Because people who know Christ, they know they know that's the most important thing in life. And David knew that. Of all the things he could share with his son, you need to know my God. Know God. What, that, what does that really practically look like? I mean, think about a relationship. What does a relationship look like? We had two churches become one last week. So what happened is, you know, last week you met a bunch of people. And so maybe you met some guy named Gus or Doug or Joe. You can't even remember his name. So you come in today and you can't remember their name. They revealed something about themselves to you and then you respond to that. Now you have to decide today whether you pretend like you know their name or whether you... Don't just say, hey, I don't remember. I met a bunch of people last week. That's what I'd recommend you try to do, by the way, when you go out in the lobby. Hey, just remind me. I I just couldn't remember. that's fine. Doesn't mean they're not important. Enough exposure. It's going to stick, I promise. But it takes time in a relationship. Time of people revealing stuff, and then you responding. And they reveal something, and you respond. And the way good relationship goes is that you reveal something, they reveal something. You reveal something, they reveal... And then trust is built. Intimacy is based on trust. You know what the Bible says about relationship with God? Without faith, another word for trust, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews 11.6. What he wants with you is relationship. What he does is he reveals himself. First, he reveals himself through Jesus Christ. Because you know what you have before Jesus Christ? You've got a, you want to reveal himself? A holy God and sinful people. Do you know what that means? His wrath is coming against you. And so what you reveal about yourself is sin. Even your greatest works, Isaiah says, is like a pile of dirty rags before God. And so then he sends his son, Jesus Christ. And you know what happens to Jesus when he's nailed to the cross? His wrath is poured out on Jesus. Now you have a decision. He's revealed himself. How will you respond? The proper response is to bow your knee before Jesus Christ. Stop trusting in yourself, shift your trust to the cross of Jesus Christ, so that all that wrath that was coming to you was poured out on Jesus. And he promises, like we read in the call to worship, you will be saved. But the problem is, a lot of people in church think that's it. Now I gotta relate. now I know God. Put that on the shelf, and I can live the rest of my life. Now he wants a relationship with you, relationships ongoing. So he keeps revealing, you keep responding. He reveals, you respond. He reveals, you respond. He reveals himself through his revelation, the Bible commands he gives you commands he reveals you respond right response to obey the commands none of us do that all the time so then the right response when we blow that is to repent and then we see his his grace he reveals we respond even when we respond poorly he reveals more we respond he reveals his promises what does that do for us that's how you live by faith fyi this isn't real complex stuff by the way but some of some of you no one's ever told you this so you cling to God's promises. When those difficult times come, you cling to his promises. That's living by faith. When you have decisions to make and it's like, God, I wish you'd just tell me. I wish you'd just write it in the sky. What is your purpose for me in this generation? And he gives you these promises. And you don't know all the details, but you seek them through prayer. And so you're revealing. He's revealing. And you cling to those promises. That's walking by faith. He reveals. You respond. He reveals. You respond. Sometimes he reveals and it seems like you just don't know him. Had a, a situation. My wife and I have been married to be 18 years on July 1st this year. We've known each other for 23 years. And so she definitely knows facts about me. See, knowing God's not just knowing facts about someone, not just knowing that God's omnipotent, not just knowing that God's righteous, not just knowing stories of the Bible. That all helps, so but that's not knowing Him. And so what happened was, we were going, my daughter had her birthday, and we were both going to meet at her school for lunch. I don't know when the last time it is you ate at an elementary school uh, cafeteria. But uh, if we schedule a lunch point with each other, we're probably not gonna meet there, I'll just tell you that. And what had happened was, my wife, I said, why don't you bring lunch uh, for me, Uh, and then also my daughter. And uh, I didn't wanna eat the, you know, chicken nugget thingies, whatever they were that was actually fried up there. And uh, so she comes and she brings this lunch and I open it up. It's got all this green stuff in it. (laughs) Now anybody who knows me knows I am allergic to guacamole. And so my lips swell up like a blowfish if I ate guacamole. And uh, I throw up if I eat guacamole. I like the taste of guacamole. But then I open it up, and I look at my wife. She didn't mean to do it. They just made a mistake there. I look at her and I go, do you even know me? Like, what what are you doing? (laughs) And then you know what I had to do? I had to go buy cafeteria food. I am so sorry, kids, that you eat that stuff on a regular basis. terrible. Sometimes God reveals himself, and the way we respond is like, do you even know him? Do you know what then you get? Grace. And then you have to respond to grace. Do you, know, do you know him? David says the first thing. You want to have an everlasting and eternal legacy? Then you've got to have eternal life. You must know him. But it's not just know him. Look at what he says next. He continues on in, in the same sentence. He says you have to have an all-in commitment with him. And that's our second point. You want to have an eternal impact? You want to have eternal legacy? Then you have to have an all-in commitment to God. You have to know God. You have to have an all-in commitment to God. Look what he said. I'll read all of verse 9 again. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. Here's the reason. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. You can't pull one over on him. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. And so what we see here is that God's he's looking for an all-in commitment. And a lot of times we act like in the church, like God should just be happy with whatever we give him. Like I showed up at 168 hours in a week and I came to church for one. Should be good, God. Check that box. Or you leave and you get sick the box. You got the boxes in the back. We give God a little tip, not a tie, the tip. Drop it in there. God, you should be happy. Like God standing outside of church with his hat just going, what, what do you want to hand over? Can I have a couple extra moments this week? God wants to, Jesus went all in for you, by the way. He wants all in commitment from you. And that's been true throughout the whole Bible. And so you see, Abraham, when he calls Abraham to come follow him, he tells him to leave everything and come follow him. When he says to the rich young ruler, sell all of your possessions, come follow me. Jesus, he says, if anyone, not just first century Christians, anyone wants to follow me, deny himself, take up his cross, come follow me. If you want to save your life, lose your life. Anyone wants to save their life, lose their life. It's always been all-in commitment. Gideon, you got too many soldiers. Let's whittle it down so you have enough soldiers. It's clear you didn't win the battle. You don't trust in horses. You don't trust in chariots. You trust me. Are you all in? Hey, Joshua, we want you to go to battle, and uh, here's what you're going to do. You don't get to take any weapons. <laughs> like if I'm Joshua, I'm like, are you kidding? I didn't hear right. Let's do that again. And march around the walls. He's saying, Joshua, I want you all in. Constantly calling for all in. What's the greatest commandment? Love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. And what we think to ourselves, like we, there's like some filter that happens between Jesus saying those things and it getting to our ears where we think we're cool with God. Maybe because we have a misperception of grace or something where we're like, God's cool with whatever I give. Especially in our, like Jesus didn't know this culture. He didn't understand this culture. Like he didn't understand all the options we'd have and all the different things that are out there. And so, of course, you've got to kind of keep your options open. See, sociologists and psychologists study this stuff right now. One of the things that seems to be happening is that younger people are more commitment-averse than older people are. Now, if you're an older person, let me just tell you something. You're still part of this culture, and it's not good. But there's study studying this of why, why are marriage ages getting so much later? And why are so many people living together before they actually get married? And why are these things... And this is secular studies that are going on. So if you want to read this, Psychology Today, you can just Google websites that will show you this information. And I was reading one this week that was talking about how they were doing studies on people with these things. And some of it they think because people are so self-centered but some of it, they think, is because there's so many options. There's just option overloads, so we don't want to commit to anything. And so what they did is they went to an upscale grocery store, and they, does that sound like North Raleigh, by the way? Upscale grocery, Sorry, Kroger, but an upscale grocery store. They go to like a Harris Teeter, and they have some people go through the store, and they have six jams on the shelf, and they see how people respond to six different jams. And then they have other people go through the store, and they have 24 different jams on the shelf, and see how people respond to those 24 different jams. And it was far less likely they would even pick any with 24 jams there. And so they're doing studies about like, why with all these dating apps and all this stuff, you never know who the next, the next person might be better, and so people are slow to commit. It's like well, they're trying to correlate these things and think through these things. Think about David here speaking to Solomon. You know Solomon has an option for every god out there as the king? Every god that we have here in RDU. I'm not talking about Baal and Moloch and Astra. For, that, forget that stuff. Like that's not. That's, I don't think many of you are tempted with that today. That's not what we're talking about. Women? Sex? Solomon, do you know Solomon's story? He's a king. You want any woman? You can have any woman you want. You're the king. Praise from other people. People come to see how wise you are, Solomon. Do You think he's tempted with that? The god of praise of other people, money, wealth, power, accomplishment. David knows all of those temptations. He's saying you got to be all in with God. You got to be all in, Solomon. Here's the problem. Solomon's not. Those of you who know the rest of the story of the Bible, it's great in this moment. Solomon's probably about 25 years old. He's doing great so far under the umbrella of his father. But you know what? People want to know about your commitment. People want, you want to live on mission for Jesus Christ? They want to know are you really committed to this? Does this really make a difference to you? Or are churches like this? I don't need another thing to do. Like, what is that to you? Does it really matter? Your kids are watching, your neighbors are watching, people are watching your life. And Solomon knew David's life. Can I tell you a little secret? Who Solomon's mom was? Do you know who Solomon's mom was? Bathsheba. Does that name ring a bell to any of you? Know the Bible? Know the, know the Old Testament at all? It's, it's, not the, it's not the baby that she got pregnant with when David had committed adultery with her and then used his power rather than for God's glory for his own selfish gain to try and kill Uriah and had Uriah killed. That baby died. But then they got pregnant again, and Solomon was the baby. Not his oldest son, which you'd naturally choose for king, right, in their culture, but God's chosen someone else, chosen Solomon. Solomon could look at his dad and be like, yeah, it's great for you to give this speech in front of all these people, in front of all your friends, dad, but you're a murderer and you're an adulterer. But why is it that the Bible says after his murder, after his adultery, that David was a man after God's own heart? In fact, do you want to know what the Bible says about Solomon's legacy? If you've got, you can flip back a little bit to 1 Kings chapter 11 and you could read verses four through six, but I'm gonna just read you verse four for the sake of time this morning. 1 Kings chapter 11 verse four says this, for when Solomon was old, His wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God. And then get this, as was the heart of David, his father. Why, why is it that David can commit adultery and can commit murder, but that that because Solomon had a divided heart, Solomon gets called out for having a divided heart, but David's still considered to have his heart as a heart after God, a man after God's own heart. Because what will happen in Solomon's life is that he will turn to other gods, and you'll read about it. If you keep reading First Kings there in chapter 11, it lays it all out. And he worships the Asherah poles, and he worships a god named Moloch. Do you know anything about Moloch? little Old Testament history. Let me tell you who Moloch is. The way that Moloch was worshipped was through gruesome orgies and child sacrifice. Not child dedication like what we saw here this morning. You would kill your child. What they would do is they would heat up the god Moloch, a metal statue of this god Moloch. They would heat it up, and they would take slain children and lay it in his hands, and he'd throw them into his mouth. And so here's Solomon, the man who builds the temple, the temple that tells everyone else, if you want to worship Yahweh, the one true God, you want to have as a sinful person an encounter with the holy God, you come to this temple, that guy is bowing down at Moloch's feet and worshiping him, then going over to the temple that he built and worshiping there. That's a divided heart. So why isn't David a divided heart? Why does it say that he had a divided heart, not a heart like David, his father, Because David repented. See, the difference for David between David and Solomon, they both sinned, and so do we all sin. by the way. That's not a secret, I hope, to any of you. The difference was that David never switched gods. David fell in temptation, but when he was confronted with his sin, he turned back to the one true God. Solomon lived a divided life. It's like, if we were to put it in a North Raleigh context, it'd be like coming here and worshiping, after going to Capitol Cabaret last night and then thinking everything's cool with you and God. It'd be like cheating on your wife and then celebrating your anniversary together and got this relationship as we draw closer to God. It'd be like stabbing your Christian brother in the back in business and then pretending like everything's cool. It'd be like cheating on your taxes, but then giving the extra money you got to the church. It's duplicity. And that's what Solomon lived. And David's going, no, no, no. And do you know what happens to Solomon? What else happens to Solomon? Is he has a divided kingdom. Not only does he have a divided heart, but you've got a divided kingdom. See, there's ripple effects of sin in our lives. A lot of times we think it's just circumstances, just stuff happens. There's things happening. You reap what you sow. It's a biblical principle that, that we see. And so David gets that. But, but let's back up for a second. So we're in this story. We're reading David speaking to Solomon. The chronicler, probably Ezra, he's writing this well after the speech took place. The people that are reading this, the initial readers of 1 Chronicles, all know Solomon blows it. So you've got to ask yourself the question, why is he writing this down? Why is he recording this? Because what happens is exactly what David says in this passage. If you don't obey me, you're going to lose the land. You're going to lose the inheritance. They get exiled. They don't obey. None of, not just Solomon. None of the people are obeying. And so they get exiled out of that place. They're punished. Now they're back in the land by the time that the Chronicler has written this. They're back in the land, they're worshiping at the second temple, which is not as glorious as the one that Solomon built. They're wondering, has God given up on us? We no longer have a king. And what he's showing them is this, God is a God of grace, amen? God is a God of second chances. Anybody here need a second chance today? That's right, I see your hands. That's true. We all do. But he still takes sin seriously. There's still consequences for sin. And so he's saying, hey, God is a God of second chances. God has mercies you new every day. The very fact that you are able to worship at the temple after Solomon blew it, after these people blew it, is a testament to that. Do you want to know your God? He's a God of grace. But he takes your sin serious. One doesn't nullify the other. But you want to know him? You've got to keep getting to trust, faith, walk by faith with him. And he's, he wants you to have, even though he's a God of grace, he wants an all-in commitment from you. Are you all in? That's a simple application question for us today. Do you know him? Are you all in a commitment with him? If not, what area is he pressing you to start trusting him in? That's the area he wants to know you. And then there's these last words. These last words are a lot like any time we see last words in the Bible, in fact. Moses to Joshua here, David to Solomon. They have a lot of overlap. It's verse 10. He says this, Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Some translations say, be strong and do the work. And that's our third point today. You must know God. You must have an all-in commitment to God. You want to have an eternal legacy? Then be strong and do the work. What does that mean? When I think about this passage, I think about David you know, grabbing his son's face. But then it almost, like these last words, they're so strong. Like a whole men's conference could be, be strong, do the work. It's like such strong language here. I imagine like a knighting moment. Like, you know, you take the sword and put it over his shoulder and like, be strong, do the work. You got to go into battle. But here's the reality. Solomon's not going into battle. He's chosen to build this house. That's God's purpose for his life. What's his purpose for you? He's got God's purpose for his life. He's going to build this temple. It's not about winning a bunch of wars, subduing enemies. So what does he mean here by be strong? Certainly, he's going to face a bunch of challenges. He's going to lead these people. They're used to worshiping anywhere they want, whenever they want, wherever they want. And he's going to tell them, you want to bring sacrifice? You've got to bring them to this one spot in the temple. Let me tell you something about leading people. You're going to learn if you lead any amount of people. I don't care if it's two employees, whatever you got. Nobody likes change. Let me tell you the second guarantee there will be change. Solomon, you're going to lead these people through change. Be strong, do the work. Solomon's going to be king. Like I told you, every God has fingertips. He can be tempted in every way that you can imagine being tempted. Be strong, do the work. He's given all these resources. We're going to start reading in verse 11. verse 11, he's handed the plans. So he would sit on, let me show you how the front porch is supposed to look. Let me tell you how the access is. Let me tell you the materials you're going to use. Here's the people that are going to do the work. He's got all these resources. You know how easy it would be to be distracted? Be strong, do the work. But how does God make someone strong? Like, what does, I, what does that look like? What does that mean to be strong? Now, I know some of you work out. Some of you own gyms. Some of you have done different athletic things before. You know in the athletic world, anytime you want to go to the next level, you've got to push yourself to a new max. Whether that's lifting weights or that's endurance sports. I remember that when I was learning to run a marathon. I did some training. I just decided, committed to run a marathon one time. Had never run that far in my life and, and one time. The idea of 26.2 miles in one run. <laughs> like, not over a year in one day. I'd never done that. I remember the first time I had to run in the training process, 13 miles. I had never run that far in my life before. And I was training for 26.2. I didn't even know if I could run 13. So I ran 13 miles that day. The next long run was 14 miles. The next one was 15 miles. The next one was 16 miles, eventually 18 miles, 20 miles. By the time I was running 20 miles, 13 miles seemed easy. But I'm gonna tell you, the morning I woke up and knew that I had to run 13 miles. I had never run 13 miles before. I got down on my knees. I said, God, will you help me run 13 miles? can't go 13 miles but you had to be pushed to a new level what does that mean in solomon's life here solomon does not know a world in which his father david is not king he does not know a world in which his father david is not his spiritual umbrella his support his encouragement david's about to die i don't know what god's brought into your life recently difficulty loss struggles temptations doesn't make you stronger what does it mean to be stronger? It's not stronger so you can go. He doesn't mean here. He's Solomon. Why don't you find the, the closest crossfit, Jim? Start flipping some tires and jumping on some boxes. To be strong means to be strong in faith. My strength is in the Lord. Psalm 28, verse 7. He is my shield, my strong tower. My strength comes from him. Remember Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1? We've despaired of life itself. We could, it was too much more than we could handle so that we would trust in you. So he brings these things into your life, not so you can get through them, so you can show how strong you are, so you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, so you'll grow in faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Be strong in faith and do the work. You know what it says in Joshua? Be strong and courageous. Why? For the Lord your God is with you. Not because you're awesome, but because he's not going to forsake you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He is with you through the process. Depend upon him. Be strong in faith. God's got a purpose for your life. He had a purpose for Solomon here. It was to build the temple. That's not its purpose for you. I don't know exactly what it is for you, but I know that's not it. What is it? Is it is it this week be strong be bold in your faith with your kids, with your neighbors. Be honest in some business deal. Reconcile a relationship. Ask for forgiveness. Repent of areas where you're not committed and God wants you to be committed. What does it look like for you to be strong in your faith? Let me tell you, fathers, here's what it looks like for you. It looks like for you to train your children in the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 says that you fathers do not exasperate your children. That doesn't mean don't mess with them and don't tease them. Amen. It means that you exasperate them when you don't give them the most important thing in the world, how to know God. So you show them, and when you fail and you blow it, you show them the God of grace. You confess that to them. You pour into them because you want to have an eternal legacy. Moms, you do the same. Kids, students, you do the same. Whoever God brings across your path, you've got an opportunity to pour eternity into their lives. And that will determine whether or not your name fulfilled God's purposes and their generation. And it will decide whether or not you have an eternal legacy. Let's pray. Father, thank you. That while this life is a vapor, you've given us this life. You give us an opportunity to invest this life for you, to invest our our minutes, our talents, our our finances, our, our, our brains, our skills, whatever it is that you've entrusted us with, that you've given us an opportunity to use that for all of eternity to know you more. And God, I pray that you tap people on the shoulder right now, have a conversation with them, speak to them. Some of them need to confess sin and get right with you, and some of them need to, to take a next step of commitment with you, that you're calling them the next step of faith, maybe in their finances, maybe with their faith, maybe in their boldness, maybe in their prayer life, whatever it is, God, you, you know how you're speaking. Speak to them. There might be somebody here who needs to trust your son, Jesus, as Savior. I pray if that's you, that God would say that he's speaking to you. He's talking to you right now. And in this moment, you would acknowledge your sin before God. We're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. But if you believe that Jesus died for your sins and he rose from the dead, that you'd place your faith. Stop trusting in yourself. trusting in doing good. Stop trying to combine it with what Jesus has done for you and place your, all your trust in what Jesus did for you on the cross and ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior. In this moment, right now, you can pray and just ask him. He promises, we read the promise earlier in this worship service, he promises if you do that, you will be saved. And maybe some of you need to cling to some of his promises take some steps of faith. Maybe you've been frozen. You've been analyzing things and you're kind of frozen in your analysis and and you don't know everything, but you know who God is and you want to know more? Take a step of faith. God, I pray you speak to our hearts. I thank you for this time we have together. I pray for our dads that by the power of your spirit, you enable them to do things that we can't do. We can't do this on our own. We can't be strong on our own. We can't know you on our own. We can't make commitment to you on your own. We need you to do it. Thank you for that the cross didn't just give us power uh, or victory over sin, but give us power to overcome sin here in this life. God, please continue to empower us. It's in Jesus' name I pray.